Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. You've heard the saying, heroes are not born, they're made. And probably we shouldn't live our lives by single-line proverbs, but I do think there's something true, even something profoundly true in that saying. Heroes are not born, they're made. The reason we have to say that saying is because we tend to think that heroes were just born as heroes, great, courageous, full of valor, full of confidence, strong, skilled, and they go and do heroic things because that's what they were born to. The stars were aligned in some way, and that's what the heroes do. They were born like that, and they're far beyond the reach of us common folk who weren't born under the same stars. But you know that there are many brilliant, valorous, courageous, mighty people born with the best qualities who never become heroes, never do anything heroic. They sit in basements and waste their talent. That's because heroes are not born heroes. Instead, heroes are just common people, aka us, who are put into circumstances that demand they become heroes. So what do we mean? They're made. They're made by those circumstances. Not everybody put in those circumstances becomes a hero, of course. But that's what the statement means. Winston Churchill, we consider a hero, great prime minister of England in her darkest days. But you know, before World War II happened, before the great Nazi death machine cast its shadow over his little island, Winston Churchill was not a hero. Actually, Churchill had been involved in English government and, in fact, before World War II happened, was probably best known for a great failure that he oversaw on the Gallipoli Peninsula. He was not particularly popular when World War II broke out. Then he was made prime minister, and then he became a hero. Churchill became a hero because it was either become a hero or lose your country and lose your freedom. So he became a hero. The circumstance made him one, you could say. There's a sense in which, not always, but oftentimes, people rise to the level of expectations. What others expect of them, even what they come to expect of themselves. When others are looking up to you, it changes how you think about yourself. And therefore, it in a sense opens a new vista. It changes what you're able to do. It changes your capacity, your possibilities. When the need arises, there are, right now in our country, thousands upon thousands of men who are not doing much with their life, but if their families, their loved ones, their nation was threatened and there was another time of war and there was a draft, they would get up and go do heroic things because it's necessary, because it then would be expected of them. I want to draw something from this proverb for us. We're not so focused on the proverb, but what we're focused on is this principle that comes from Scripture as well. And it's very useful to our growth in holiness. And it's this. You can become a lot more of a Christian, a lot more holy, 
a lot more Christ-loving, a lot more passionate, a lot more alive than you are right now if you think that you can, if you think that you must. If you don't come to think that you can or you must, then you won't. Common man thrust into leadership is shaken awake and has to figure things out and often does. If the Spirit of God, even using this text today, reaches into your life and somehow shakes you awake from the decent, good Christian life we tend to live, where we're doing enough, but not much more, shakes you awake and you come to realize much more is expected of you. You're not expected to be a decent Christian who just sits around while the really strong Christians do the work. You're supposed to be the strong Christian. You. That's what's expected of you by God. That's what we ought to expect of each other down to the last one of us. No excuses of upbringing or tendencies or past or what we're like or what we're not like or personality. Those all have to be set aside. For each of us, there is the highest of expectations that you will demonstrate to the world what it looks like to be you, but in the holiest form possible, the most like Christ, the most loving toward others, the most self-denying for the good of the world around you, the most evangelistically fervent, the most in love with Christ, the most submissive to the Father's will. What Paul is going to do in this passage in Galatians today is make an appeal, a sort of final appeal in this chapter to you to live out, if we can borrow terminology and not misunderstand it, but really to live out your full potential as a Christian. Not the status quo, but our prayer is God would use this passage to move us past our status quo into the broad sunlit uplands of greater Christian experience, which is possible for each and every one of us. But if you're going to change, to become like everything I'm presenting here, you're first going to have to change how you think about yourself. So let's see that in this passage, these three verses, Galatians 5. We're starting in verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited provoking one another, envying one another. Now, we have for several weeks been considering that great conflict that takes place inside you. It's between, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit who indwells you right now and your flesh, which is Paul's way of saying the sin that remains in you. The spirit who is within you, the sin that remains with you, they are at conflict. There shall be no peace. They are at war within you. 
And he has, in these last weeks, as you've seen in the text, ever since verse 16, been showing you what it looks like when the flesh is winning, enmity, sexual sin, all kinds of terrible things, and what it looks like when the Spirit is dominant in your life. Love and joy and peace and everything we love. Everything that's good. Really what's happened is he's been showing us this conflict and before he leaves the subject of this ongoing conflict toward holiness, spirit versus flesh, he makes one more appeal. Really the appeal is a simple one. It's like Jesus saying, if you know these things, if you've been here the last few weeks, you've heard these things? Okay. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Today's when the rubber meets the road. If we live by the Spirit, our text says, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, live by the Spirit. Do it. Keep in step. Live that way. Don't just say it. Don't just hear it. But do it. That's the thrust of the passage today. If you've not seen as much victory over sin in your own life as you may hope, even as we've gone through these passages, you say, why am I still stuck in the rut I'm stuck in? This final appeal is to push you out of that rut. <laughs> and he's going to provide for you an open secret. One way that you can encourage this growth in yourself to really overcome the flesh. And it's this, and it's taught throughout the New Testament and here. If you want to change, you have to change the way you think about yourself. Among other things, but that's the focus today. We have to start thinking of ourselves differently. Specifically in this passage, there are two things that we have to think are true of ourselves, which if you're a believer, they are, but you have to think it. You have to really think it. One is that you're spiritual. Two is that you're not fleshly. So let's look at those two points, and may the Spirit of God help us to really believe these things and therefore to grow. Start with what I take to be the main thrust of our passage there in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And really, the heart of our passage today is just the last half of that. Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Like I said, back in verse 16, he started with this appeal. But I say, walk by the Spirit. See how that is a command to you to do that? You have to walk by the Spirit. But since verse 16, it's all been description. This walk by the Spirit. Now this is what's happening inside you, this conflict. This is what it looks like when the flesh is winning. This is what it looks like when the Spirit is winning. But by the time he gets to our text, verse 25, he throws in a last appeal. Because we're about to get into chapter 6. We're about to move on from this subject. And he throws in a last appeal. Walk by the Spirit, description, and now in our text, keep in step with the Spirit. To keep in step with the Spirit is simply to conduct your day-to-day -day life according to what the Holy Spirit wants you to be doing. It's like the Spirit Himself takes chalk, 
draws little footprints for you on the ground. Over here, this is love. You got to love that coworker. That's difficult. And over here is patience. You got to be patient with your child. When they say that again and again and again, you're going to be patient with them. Over here, you're getting anxious and worried, but the spirit says, no, no, don't step toward morbid introspection and thinking over there. You're going to step in joy. And if you step in those chalk marks, you're walking by the Spirit. It's a day-by-day day activity. You could step outside the chalk marks. You could step anywhere else you like, but then you're not keeping in step with the Spirit. You're doing what you want to do. So what he's calling us to do is to do the things the Spirit wants us to do in our day-by-day day life. Now you know it's easier said than done. Actually, it's easier heard than done. You've been here, you've heard the messages, you see the text, we hear, and it's one easy thing for us to come and to hear sermons. For me as well, to hear sermons, it can be interesting. You could just be interested in what I happen to wear today, or you're interested in intellectual curiosity that's satisfied this way or that way. You like to hear certain things. Maybe, oh, that was a nice phrase. That's an interesting story. What a nice illustration. Or a more negative slant is fine as well. But you can come and listen and it's an easy thing. But the hard thing is now that you see where the chalk is, actually putting your foot there and actually loving that coworker. We shake our head here and go, of course, love the coworker. <laughs> but you know what's hard to do? It's hard to love the coworker. It's hard to actually do it. That's the command here. Keep in step. And that's why he has to give it as an appeal again because it is difficult. He has to tell us once again before he signs off on this part of the passage, once again, you've got to do it. There's a sense in which this passage is just saying, listen, do it. There it is. Do it. But at the same time, it's not just saying do it. Because even there in verse 25, we have an argument, we have a reason given for why you ought to step in the chalk when it's so hard to do, why you ought to actually do these things. And he says it like this, if we live by the Spirit, then let's keep in step with the Spirit. If we live by, and the if there is not a matter of uncertainty. If you're a believer, you live by the Spirit. That's the same as walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. You live by the Spirit. The Spirit gives you life. It's like we read in Romans 8, 9. You, believer, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. It's a statement of fact. That's true of you. So the if in this passage is not like, well, maybe you are as a Christian. Maybe you do live by the Spirit, but maybe you don't. It's not like that. He's assuming that this is true. You do live by the Spirit. He puts an if there to get you to think about it. He says, wait a second. You live by the Spirit, right? Right? Right. Yes, you do. If that's true, then shouldn't you step in the chalk marks? Because the Spirit drew them. Yeah? So, you live by the Spirit, then that's the way you walk, right? And we all have to go, well, yeah, that makes sense. That's the reasoning in this verse. It is to remind you something true about yourself to wake you up, to get you stepping in the chalk marks. That's what verse 25 is doing. And what is it reminding you about yourself? Something that we tend always to forget. 
you live by the Spirit. To put it another way, you're a believer, speaking to true believers. If you don't know Christ in a true saving way, this doesn't apply to you yet. Trust in Him and it does. But you know Christ in a saving way, you're spiritual. I don't know if you've ever applied that term to yourself. I don't know if anyone else ever has. When you think spiritual, you might think some vague new agey kind of thing. Or you might think of just the really good Christians in your life. Don't think like that. You're spiritual. You live by the Spirit, yeah? You're spiritual in the truest sense. That's the first thing that Paul wants you to remember about yourself. How are you going to step in the chalk marks when it's so hard? You're going to remember, first of all, you live by the Spirit. And if you live by the Spirit, if you're a spiritual person, it is fitting, it makes sense that you would walk where the Spirit says to walk. But see, you have to remember you're spiritual in order to think, oh, that's fitting. It's the fitness between you being this sort of person who is spiritual and you walking in this certain way, living this certain way, a spiritual way of living. There's a fitness. There's a rightness about those. Now, you may, as a spiritual believer, not always step in the chalk. But when you do that, it's like the gold ring in the pig snout in Proverbs. It's not fitting. It's not fitting. It's weird. You should look at that and go, that's so weird that you sinned. Because you're such a spiritual person as a believer. Now this is worth adding because when we have to wrestle with the Ephesian beasts of temptation in ourselves and come face to face with our sin and fight it and not always succeed and sometimes fail, spiritual is the very last thing we tend to feel. When you are really in the throes of temptation, there is that sin that you deal with often. You fight it head on. There it is. You failed in the past. Not this time. And you are fighting it, clutching for dear life. You don't necessarily feel spiritual. Actually, you might feel like, I should already be way past this sin. I feel particularly, particularly not spiritual. I feel rather fleshly to even be dealing with this. See, when our circumstances are sunshine, and when there's no real heavy external pressure, and when we have only pleasant interactions throughout the day, and we got up early, and we come back home, and everything is peace, and butterflies float about us, then at that time, it's easier to feel spiritual. Of course, I live by the Spirit. But when temptation strikes, when you have the unpleasant interactions... When you're having conflict with believers or co-workers or other moms and your children are being crazy and now there's that temptation to be so frustrated, you don't feel spiritual at that moment. What do you need most at that moment? To remember whatever you might feel like in that moment. You are spiritual. You live by the Spirit. And if you live by the Spirit, then step in the chalk. Do the spiritual things. But you have to remember that that's the case. If you put yourself in the sandals of these Galatians, they themselves had their own faith threatened by the Judaizers who were coming in to destroy their gospel, to turn them away from Christ. And if you read verse 26, it may suggest there's some infighting going on in their churches. Let us not become conceited. 
provoking one another, envying one another. Probably a response to infighting among the Galatians, maybe over the Judaizers, maybe over something else. Not an easy, pleasant circumstance, very much like real life. And he tells them, you live by the Spirit. You are spiritual. Therefore, walk in keeping with what the Spirit wants you to do. Threats outside, threats inside. It may be that God has prepared a table for you in the presence of your enemies, a rather uncomfortable place for your table to be. How are you going to enjoy a meal with your enemies looking on? Tempestuous temptations outside, inside, it makes you feel unspiritual. And Satan will, of course, play upon that feeling that you have in a time of temptation. When you are struggling against sin, wondering, should I do this? Should I not? And Satan comes along and he says, listen, you want to do it. You're not like those other Christians. They don't even want to do this stuff. You want to do it? You're fleshly. You're not spiritual. I mean, you're a Christian, but you're not one of those spiritual Christians. You struggle. You're much more human. You're much more down to... In fact, if you resist that temptation, you're a hypocrite. Because you want to do it. You want to do it. You're just not going to do it. You're just going to go through the motions of not doing it. But you want to. You might as well do it. At least you'll be consistent. <laughs> Satan comes in, plays on those feelings that you have of being unspiritual and says, yeah, you're right. You're unspiritual. So you might as well do the unspiritual thing. How are you going to fight that temptation? You're going to remember this about yourself. Do you live by the Spirit? Yes. You stop. You say, do I belong to Christ Jesus? Then I live by the Spirit. And if I live by the Spirit, let me also keep in step with the Spirit. The only hypocrisy for you is not to step in the chalk. That's fitting. That's what you are. That's what you signed your life to. That. You are spiritual. Do the spiritual thing. I don't feel spiritual. Okay. Okay. Maybe it's something you ate. I don't know. You're going to do the spiritual thing because there's a fittingness that if we live by the Spirit, if that's what we are, then we need to keep in step with what the Spirit wants us to do. You are spiritual. Now this is less a direct application from the text, but it is there. Speaking of you being spiritual, you living by the Spirit, Brothers and sisters, when we are dealing with temptation, we can't remain of two opinions. At some point, you just have to make this decision, come to some conclusion on this question. Do you, like you claim, really have a being of unlimited power who hovered over the chaos of the primordial waters of this universe and then brought them into life teeming with greenery out of chaos and disorder and death and brought them into life and made them flourish, who intends to do that same thing in you by crushing your sin and bringing all the fruits of the Spirit. Do you really have that being living inside you? It's not like a maybe question. It's like a yes or a no kind of an answer to a question because you either do 
or you don't. And if you don't have that sort of being inside of you, then it's fully understandable, given the strength of temptation in this life that you may have built up over long habit, even as a Christian, it's fully understandable if you don't have such a being within you that you would say, I simply cannot overcome this sin or this sin habit. But if we're going to answer that question in the affirmative and say that that is precisely the being we claim to have within us, you can't say can't. You can't say can't. Say, well, I've just always struggled with anger. My grandpa struggled with anger. My dad struggled with anger. I struggle with anger. I've done everything I know to do, and I'm still an angry person. I'm angry while I drive. I'm angry at my kids. I'm angry at my spouse. I can't stop being angry. Lie. That is a lie. If you're not a believer, then maybe. You're a believer. The Holy Spirit with unlimited powers within you to fight your anger so that you're patient, and he can't do it, <laughs> he can do it. He can do it. It's fair of you if you want to question technique, because I assure you it's user error. If you have some sin you're still struggling with, and many of us do, still struggle with it, some kind of, let's say, anxiety. I always get anxious about everything. And you've tried to deal with it in a variety of ways. You pray, you strive against it, and it still shows itself. You may want to question how you're approaching it. You may want to think, am I dealing with this in a biblical way? Am I exercising faith? Am I relying on the Holy Spirit? Am I putting myself in places of temptation? Think about technique on your end. But the point I'm making now is simply this. You can't say can't. You are a spiritual person. You can overcome that exact sin that you're dealing with. You can say, well, it's, a, it's an addiction. It has a physical component. You can. You can. You can. You can't say you can't. You can, not because of you, not because of your ability, not because I have some secret as a preacher to impart to you, because you have the Holy Spirit within you. Do you live by the Spirit? Are you a spiritual person? Spiritual people can overcome sin. It's hard. It hurts. Sometimes it takes a long time. But you cannot say can't. And that is essential to overcoming sin because Satan will convince you or attempt to convince you that you simply can't because you're unique because blah, blah, blah. No, you're not unique. You're like all the rest of us. And you have sins and you can overcome them progressively by the help of of the almighty Holy Spirit who lives within you. So the first thing that we have to remember about ourselves if we're going to walk in step with the Spirit is that it's fitting you do so because you live by the Spirit. You are spiritual. Now secondly, and this is just the converse, if I'm using that term correctly, the opposite of what we've just said, not only are you spiritual, but if you're a believer, you are not fleshly. Look at this in verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
Now, if I had the time, I would make this a whole nother point, that this is something true of you as a Christian. You belong to Christ Jesus. That is a beautiful phrase. But since I don't have the time, we're simply going to take that as Paul means it as a kind of shorthand for true believer. If you're a true believer, you belong to Christ Jesus. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, that's you, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, you are not, you cannot be in an ultimate sense fleshly. The fullest treatment of this concept is found in Romans chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. The Apostle Paul begins that section of Scripture in answer to this question, which is, if we are really as Christians completely cleared of our guilt, totally forgiven just for believing in Christ, then why don't we take our forgiveness card and go and sin in all the ways we want to sin. You can't go to hell for it. You're forgiven, right? So just do whatever you want to do. Romans 6 and 7 are an answer to that question. And here's the essential answer that Paul starts with. How can we who died to sin still live in it? All of us as believers have died to sin. You have died to sin. In fact, you're reminded of this all the time because Paul says in Romans 6 that baptism, which we do up here, when we do a baptism, one of the many things that baptism represents is when we bring the person down into the water, it represents, it is a picture of the fact that in trusting in Christ, this person died to their old self, to sin, to the law, to judgment. They died and then we bring them back up because now they're alive in Christ, alive to God, a new life. So you see, crucified with Christ all the time. Crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, alive. Baptism is a picture of that. Now let me just say the obvious first, because our text says that you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The obvious thing to say here is that you were not literally crucified with Jesus 2,000 years ago. You actually did not exist that long ago, nor were you in the Middle East. And so you did not die on a cross with the next to Jesus. There were two thieves who did. You were not one of them. So we do not take this in that sort of a literal sense. This is actually a picture. Paul will say in Galatians 6, we'll see soon, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Even the world is crucified according to that picture. This is a picture, a comparison, meant to help you think better about yourself. Excuse me. The question is, <clears throat> when you think of yourself, what is your relationship to the flesh? Seeing that you're spiritual, but you still have flesh. What is your relationship to the flesh? Does it rule you? Does it own you? Can it make you do what it wants? The answer given here is, you have brought your flesh to a bloody end. <clears throat> Excuse me. Pray for me. Let's see if this voice can get through this. <laughs> this is fun. You have brought your flesh to a bloody end. 
you have crucified your flesh with its passions and desires. Now, there are times when this picture is used, like in Romans 6 and 7, to refer to the fact that you've died to the law. You're forgiven. The law cannot condemn you. See that at the beginning of Romans chapter 7 for forgive, for example, but that is not the focus here, forgiveness. The focus here is that you, Christian, have crucified the flesh in regard to its power. That's why he says you've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So let me ask you this. You know that in the Bible, David, the king, as a young man, was said to have taken a lion by its mane while it was alive, killed it with his hands. If we had a lion burst into this room right now through the back, who would volunteer to go and grab the lion by its mane? I mean, David did it. You can do it right. None of us would want to grab the lion by its mane because a lion is stronger than any of us. But if instead that lion was dead, the smallest person in here, which maybe it's me. No, we got some children, you guys, could go and could easily grab that lion by its mane. It's the same lion. What's different? It has no life. It has no vitality, and therefore it has no strength. Does it still have that immense musculature that could crush you? Yes. Does it still have the massive jaws? Does it still have the great teeth? Yes. Can't use any of them because it's a dead lion. That's why Solomon in Ecclesiastes says a living dog is better than a dead lion. Even a lion, if you take the life force out of it, there's nothing that it can do. Your flesh used to be a live lion. It owned you. It ruled you. Remember? It caused chaos in your life and the life of everyone who knew you. But you have crucified that lion with its passions, its desires, its roaring, its attacking. You've crucified it. The life force has been drained out of it. It's not a scary thing anymore. You may have lived in verse 26, conceited, provoking, envying, that lion used to require those things of you, but it's a crucified lion. It's a dead lion. Your flesh is dead, crucified. Now, maybe a better picture we could think of a lion that's just about dead because there is a truth to the fact that you still have flesh. It's received its mortal wound, but it's still there. It's still tempting. You still can sin. So imagine a lion that's received its mortal wound, <clears throat> nearly dead, but at times it lunges, slumps down, reaches a paw, falls. That's what your flesh is. That is your relationship to the flesh. <clears throat> now, in a practical sense, I could draw attention to a saying that for us as Christians who appreciate the Reformation means a lot to us. Have you ever heard the saying in Latin, simul justus? et peccator. It simply means at the same time justified and a sinner. It's a beautiful truth. It means that you and I, although we're technically sinners, we do sin. We sin this week. At the same time, because of Christ's righteousness, we are justified in the sight of God. We are considered righteous. That is a beautiful, true thing. But in our reform circles, there can be times when the emphasis gets off just a little bit. The meaning of that phrase, at the same time justified and a sinner, 
The emphasis is supposed to fall on justified. We know we're sinners. We go, but I can't believe I'm justified even though I'm a sinner. But Satan likes to come in and say, did God really say? And take that phrase and he'll let you even keep the words. But just move the emphasis over to the sinner part. So now you're fighting some temptation and you're right in the rink with it. And it's very difficult. And Satan comes in and he says, hey, hey, don't worry so much. I mean, don't wear yourself out. For freedom you were set free, remember? You are at the same time justified and a sinner. You're a sinner. So if you give in to this temptation and you sin, I know you shouldn't do it, but look, you're a sinner. You say it yourself. And we're reformed folks, so we say it. We're sinners. I'm a sinner. We sing it. I'm a sinner. We're sinners. Okay, listen, that's true. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're sinners. Okay, good. It's not where the emphasis is meant to fall. And that's never meant to be an obstacle to our growth. There you are sitting on the couch being lazy, and you know you're being lazy. It's not recreation and rest. You're just being lazy. And you know you should get up, and you know you should pray, reach out to someone in need, do something profitable. You've been there long enough, and then you think, well, simul justus et peccator. <laughs> it's Latin, you know, so it's got to, you can use that. I'm just, just, I'm a peccator. I'm a sinner. No, you are not fleshly. You're not. Your flesh, crucified, dead, died. You have to think of it that way. So even for us in our circles, although it's true and we should call ourselves sinners, you can keep doing that because it's true. But we shouldn't put the emphasis there so much that it just defeats us. Like, well, we're just fleshly. We're just sinners. We just sin like everybody else. No, we sin, but not like everybody else. Because we repent of it, we fight it, we overcome it by the Spirit. We are not fleshly. You are not fleshly. You have crucified the flesh with its desires. The desire to just be lazy and lay there. The desire to say the harsh word. You've killed it. It's dead. Sometimes it reaches out its paw. You smack it. Stay there. You have crucified the flesh with its desires. Now, even in Romans chapter 6, where Paul is talking about the fact that we've died to our old selves, he still gives this command, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. In other words, that lion, think of him also as a dethroned monarch. He's been removed. He ruled your life, but no longer. Don't think of him as in charge. He doesn't get to call the shots. He has been removed you do not have to listen to him. In fact, you must not listen to him. Let not sin reign in your body. Do not obey its passions. You've crucified the flesh with its passions. They're dead. They're dead to you. You don't live for them. You don't listen to them. You have to be able to think of yourself in these terms. This isn't just abstract theology. You have to carry these ideas with you into the field of battle with your specific sins. You have to be ready to say, when you're tempted, I am dead to you. Sin. You, sin that I'm dealing with, I'm dead to you. You're dead. 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 Not alive. You don't have strength to overcome me. You are dead. Romans 6, again, on this very subject, he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
If you go into your fight against sin thinking, I'm just a sinner and I'm just fleshly and I struggle, I'm human, whatever, you'll lose. How are you going to win? You have to go in thinking, I'm spiritual. I am not fleshly. Sin shall not have the last word. Yes, the temptations are strong. I do not have to listen to them. They are dead to me. And I am dead to them. How will you know if you're thinking the right way going into temptation? I think verse 26 will answer. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. If you're provoking others and envying others, you're sinning. So that's the point here. But notice he starts with this idea of conceited, which is an idea of empty glory. And you might be looking at yourself saying, oh, I'm just a sinner. I'm the worst sinner. And it can feel like humility. I'm just the worst sinner. I sin all the time. That's all I do. And I'm just the worst sinner. Actually, humility in the face of temptation would be to admit, yes, I do sin. But I'm going to choose this moment, however unspiritual and fleshly I may feel, to believe what God has said about me. And God has told me very clearly and specifically in this very passage that I am dead, my flesh is dead, I live by the Spirit, therefore I will now walk by the Spirit. That's humility. Actually, in this case, conceit is when you think, no, I know better than God. God might think I'm spiritual. But I know better than God does. I'm just a sinner. I'm just going to give in to sin again. That's conceited. Let us not be conceited. In this case, let us not provoke or envy others either. If you're stuck in a muddy rut this morning of some temptation, I guarantee the way that you are thinking about yourself is not right. There is something wrong with it. You have to start thinking about yourself, and this can be hard, when you are tempted as not that sort of person. Temptation to yell at your kids, but you're not that sort of person. So, well, I, they think I'm that sort of person. No, no, no. That's what you used to be. You are not that sort of person. You're a spiritual person. You're not a fleshly person. You're not the sort of person who yells at her kids, his kids. Ah, pornography, I've done it forever, I can't stop doing it, I just, I'm, that's who I, no, 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 no. It's weird that you've done that, you should never have done that, that's so odd, you shouldn't do that. I don't care what culture does, that's weird, it's not fitting for you, and you're not the sort of person who looks at that. Maybe it'd be helpful for you to think of the most spiritual sort of person in your life that you know, the godliest role model that you have in your life, that you want to be like that. You're that sort of person. Would they do that? No, 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 they wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. You're not that sort of person. It's not fitting for you. You have crucified the flesh with all its desires. You live by the Spirit. That's the sort of person that you are. We're not going to give ourselves the big head and conceitedness of saying that we're heroes and using the proverb from the beginning, but there is a real sense here in which we need to rise to the occasion. What is expected of you is that you will live as a spiritual person, walking in the chalk marks the Spirit has laid down. It is expected that you really will grow. You really will hear this sermon and go home and make serious 
real, measurable progress against anxiety and anger and sin of all varieties. You really will stop looking at pornography. You really will be pure with your boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance. You really will love your spouse better, be more gentle with your children. It's expected of you. You've been put into that position of leadership, so to speak. You are put into that position. God expects it of you. Scripture expects it of you. We expect it of you. You expect it of us. Let us rise to the occasion and be more than we think we can be by first thinking we can be more than we are.